Hi, Pastor John welcoming you to our broadcast. Today, we'll take a close look at God's mercy as we see in Psalm 51. This is David realizing he's made a disastrous mistake and sinned against God. We're going to deal with the question, am I really forgiven? And how we can be assured that we are. So let's join the servant and see how God deals with David's sin and what it can mean to us. My brother and my sister, you go with our blessings, and we pray that you're as much a blessing to Veritas as you have been to us. Thank you for your years of faithful service. Thank you. We, we had movie night uh, last Friday night. We, we ate candy. We ate popcorn. We dropped it on the floor. Don't tell Diane. We vacuumed, uh, and, and we saw Joseph. It was, it was a magnificent production. I am absolutely amazed at how moving these presentations are. Uh, I walked in going, okay, nothing could be like Daniel or David, you know, and, and uh, in the middle of it, I'm going, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so we're going to be doing this regularly every five or six weeks or so. We'll have a date for the next presentation sometime this week. Uh, we invite you to ask your friends. We had a number of visitors, um, and we had a great time. Uh, so keep your eyes open for the next movie night. I'd like you to turn to uh, Psalm 51. By the way, when Lisa did the scripture reading this morning, I wrote that script, and when she said, as Solomon said in Lamentations, it was my mistake, not hers. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Uh, I'm going to go back and study my Bible again next week. So, <laughs> Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. 
Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Word of God, brothers and sisters. When I first started counseling here, um, the most amazing things come up. And, and I was sitting with somebody that really didn't go to church here. And I'd met with them two or three times, and they said, I, I, I've got a burden. I don't know what to do with it. And I said, well, tell me what it is. I've committed this sin. And it was, it was horrific. It was about as horrific as anything I've heard. And I'm sitting there going, oh, don't put any expression on your face. Don't react. And I said, well, you know, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior? Yes. And, well, you're forgiven. And they said, am I really forgiven? Am I really forgiven? And they had borne this burden for so long that they couldn't imagine that God would lift this burden from them. That it was so terrible, it was so horrific that God couldn't possibly forgive this particular sin. This is why we have this type of psalm. They're called penitent psalms. Penitent means to be conscious stricken. To be repentant, totally repentant from deep in your heart over something. Let me give you some background to the psalm. This psalm was written by David. In 2 Samuel 7 through 10, God makes this covenant with David. Uh, David wants to build a house for God. And God said, no, you can't do that. You're a man of bloodshed. Uh, Promises him his son will build the temple. Uh, and, and then David goes on to achieve a, a, an incredible series of victories. He forms a government and shows mercy to the grandson of Saul, the son of his friend Jonathan, who passed away in battle. And then he gains two more strategic victories. And, and by the time we get to 2 Samuel 11, uh, David is riding the crest of a wave. Everything's going his way. He's got his hands full. He's busy, but he's, everything is just falling into place. And then this happens in 2 Samuel eleven eleven, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rebbe. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with 2 Samuel and the progression of things, you know what happened. He goes out on the rooftop. He sees Bathsheba. He calls her over to the, the, the palace, and they have relations, and Bathsheba's married. Well, what, yeah, now David's in a pickle, and uh, he's not quite sure what to do, and he tries to manipulate Bathsheba's wife, uh, husband, into... Uh, coming home and spending some time with her and and none of that works and he ends up killing Uriah and, and he does it does it in in battle and he does it in such a way that David couldn't possibly be blamed on it but he arranges for him to die and then he takes Bathsheba as his wife of course there's this guy Nathan 
And, you know, he's a prophet, he's an advisor, and he goes in and tells David this long story about uh, a rich guy who takes a poor guy's lamb and and, you know, what do you think of that? And David says, oh, that man ought to be killed. And Nathan says, that man is you. That man is you. And David begins to understand the depth of his sin and f- how far he's fallen. And it is then that he writes Psalm 51. So we're going to find whether or not David is lost. Is everything gone? Is there a way back for David? And the answers are right here in this psalm. We call the, this, this sermon is called The Miracle of Mercy. So we're going, to end it, we're going to see David's restoration. We'll see his confession in 1 through 6. We will see his cleansing in 7 through 12. His commitments in 13 through 15. And David's confidence, confidence in God in 16 through 19. So let's take a look at David's confession, starting with verse 1. He says, and, and this is David crying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Now, mercy is the language of someone who does not deserve God's favor. David knows he doesn't deserve anything here. This is David begging. He's begging for God to be gracious. He knows he's in trouble. And he brings up the terminology of the covenant. He appeals for, to God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. Now, we need to understand, David's not sorry that he got caught. He's sorry for what he did. He knows that he has failed to live up to what he has been called to do. So it doesn't remind God of what he David has done. He doesn't go over all the details and say, oh God, I don't know if you were looking, but I did this. And he's totally dependent upon God and what God has done and what God has promised and what God will do. He's begging God to, David says, blot out my transgressions. And here David describes the the act of wiping a filthy stain away with a clean cloth. And he gets more graphic in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's using common everyday Jewish language here. Talking about the laundry. And that, that's what the Jews would hear. They would hear that there's filthy soiled laundry that desperately needs to be cleaned. And all this graphic imagery portrays a stain on David's soul, a burden that he's carrying. And it leads to this humble and contrite confession. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. His sin has become a, a crushing burden. It haunts him through the day, and it keeps him awake at night. Why? Why is this so difficult? Why is it so hard? And we come to the key of the impact that sin has. Listen very carefully. The key to the impact that sin has on a believer is right here in the next verse, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight. Now, we need to understand, sin comes in a lot of different forms. We can sin against ourselves, just so that we don't think that there's a private sin that has no impact on someone. Okay, in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So we can sin against ourselves. Scripture is very clear that we can sin against others. We see it all over the place. But we should see here that David understands that the sin that he is first and foremost against God. It's a violation of God's holiness. It's a violation of God's purity. It's a violation against his son who if you're saved, if you have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's a violation against his son who lives in us and died to cleanse us of that type of activity. And David says this. He says, I'm saying this so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's saying, yes, I deserve judgment. I violated your holiness. And, and I deserve the consequences for that. And David's sin is judged by a just and, and pure God. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and then sin did my mother conceive me. Now, now David's saying, okay, this isn't even an isolated incident. I, I sin by nature. It's in me. David's going deep now. Sin is deep within his nature, and it always has been. It's an inner war, and he just lost a major battle. The question is, has he lost the war? Has he lost everything? Maybe there's some hope. Maybe we see that in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here's a revelation that David has just had. The Spirit of God is whispering to him, witnessing to his spirit, telling him that this most recent infraction only reveals how desperate David's situation really is. This is his confession. And his confession is heartfelt. It is sincere. It is contrite in every way. And that confession, that realization that that David is a sinner, even though he's been made king by God, even though he's felt God's blessing, even though he's gotten victory over his enemies through the power and presence of God, he's still a sinner. And David just renders this up. It's almost as he said, I don't want to do this. He's kind of doing a Paul thing here. But it comes out of me, and I need help. I need mercy. I need grace. And that leads to his cleansing. Starting with verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. When a leper would go to a priest... And the priest would go through this ritual. He had to sprinkle him seven times with sacrificial blood. 
And he would do that by dipping a bunch of hyssop into the blood and literally painting the leper with it. That's what David's talking about here. You see that in Leviticus 14. A similar ceremony for someone who'd come into contact with a, a dead person. You see that in Numbers 19. Hyssop was used as, to get the blood over to the patient. And in, in all cases, when that procedure was done, the priest would then proclaim, he shall be clean. David's asking God to perform the cleansing prescribed in his word to make something diseased and infected clean again. And he repeats the, the request that he made in verse 2. Now, David, David knows that this is an effective procedure, not because of the process, because it's prescribed and promised by God. And David is accepting in faith that it will be effective in him as well. He's holding tightly to God's promises. And in verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let me give you the Kavakas paraphrase here. It's fill me with your joy. Fill me with your gladness. And David echoes the joy of one who was unclean. And is being cleansed and being accepted back into the community. In verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Again, that's the plea from verse 1. He's repeating himself. And he boldly asks, he boldly asks for God to transform him, to change him, to regenerate him. Look at verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me. Now, the the word for create here has a connotation of a continued work. He's not asking God to do something new in him. He's asking God to continue the work that God's already started in David. David's recognizing that God has begun working in his heart. And yes, he's lost this battle, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the war is over. He wants to be holy in his heart. Flesh has gotten in the way. Wants God to continue to refine him, to regenerate this deceitful heart that we're told we have in Jeremiah. And to renew his spirit. And and in renewing his spirit, to renew the relationship that he had with his father before he committed this sin. In verse 7, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, David knew the cost of refusing to repent from his sin. He saw it in Saul. Saul had been touched by God, made king. And Saul continued to sin and repent. And finally, God just removed his spirit from Saul. David doesn't want to go through that. You see that in 1 Samuel 16. And then he says this in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now there's a lot here. David's not asking to be saved again. David's not saying, okay, I I lost my salvation. That terminology is in this this passage. And we see salvation in a little bit different light. We see it through the lens of Jesus Christ. But David knows that his salvation is in the work of God and in the promises of God. 
He wants to experience the joy of that salvation once again. The joy of a close and intimate relationship with his Father in heaven. And this cleansing that he's receiving goes deep down into his soul. It restores him. It renews him. It sets him right with God. And if you read very carefully here, you see that all the work that David is asking to be done is done by God. The sovereign move of God on David's life and on his heart. All David has done is ask God to have his way with him. And all that leads to a change, a transformation. David vows to put that transformation on display. This is where we see David's commitments. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now listen carefully. This is not David making a deal with God. This is not David saying, well, if you do this, and I'll do this. This is not David listening to a missionary from Africa and somebody standing up and going, I've had a hard time in my life in a bad situation. If God delivers me from that situation, I'll go to Africa and be a missionary too. David's not, not negotiating with God. It's not him saying, if you do this, and I'll do that. This is David's response to the cleansing. He's experienced the restoration. He's experienced this joy, the renewal of his intimacy with his Father in heaven. He says, deliver me from blood guiltness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. As God works on David, David begins to realize that even the praise that comes out of his mouth is initiated by his Father in heaven. David's commitment is to demonstrate that work to everyone that he encounters. And David's confident that God will do this work. Look at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. It's an open admission that the type of repentance that depends more on ritual and process, the type of repentance that is a legalistic type of repentance, accomplishes absolutely nothing. God's not after our processes. He's not after our legalism. He doesn't want our shallow promises never to do this again. He wants our hearts. He wants hearts that are sold out to his holiness, to his purity. Hearts that are submitted to his love for us. David knows he offered up his heart. He knows that God is not only restored him, but will continue to protect and to preserve him and continue to bless the kingdom that God gave him. He says in verse 18, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. As God continues to bless David, continues to bless his kingdom David will lead his people in godliness. 
And only then, as, as these people honor God and love the one true God, only then will God be pleased with their rituals and sacrifices. And their relationship will continue to grow. David's confidence is not in the process. It's not in the people around him. It's not in their rituals, not in their ceremonies, but in the faithfulness and the steadfastness of his father in heaven. So we've seen David's restoration, this confession. He doesn't run, listen, he doesn't run to anyone but God. Oh, I did this terrible thing to Bathsheba. I got to go talk to her. He goes to God to ask for forgiveness. He doesn't try to explain himself to God, doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't go over all the details and say, okay, God, just in case you're not up to date on what's going on in my life, let let me fill you in. God knows what he did. And so does David. And watch this, his confession is not, oh, I've done something bad. It's I've offended you, and I've hindered my relationship with you. And that rises up from the depths of David's heart, comes from deep inside him. Then we saw his cleansing. It's It's a work done solely by God. David's not doing a prayer he's going to recite over and over and over again. He's not, he's not saying, okay, I got, to make, I got to do this to fix it or I'm not going to be right with God. It's done solely by God. David's part, David's part in his cleansing is his submission to the Father. He's just laying himself bare in front of God, completely at the Lord's feet. And asking God to do something that David cannot do himself to cleanse him supernaturally and completely. And then, then we see David's commitment to all this. He vows to make God's mercy and grace public. He's going to tell people about it. He's going to tell people about how forgiving God is and how wretched David was. And how God readily forgave him once he laid it out in front of God and said he, he regretted offending God, not doing a bad thing. You're going to tell people how joy can be restored if true repentance is expressed. David commits to making his transformation as obvious as possible. And then we saw the confidence David had in, the, in his Father in heaven, in his promises and his faithfulness. Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Philippians. So we see this carried out in the New Testament as well. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice, it's not today. God's not expecting us to be perfect today. And notice who started the work. God. And so the completion of the work is not dependent on how we respond to it or how well we we carry it out. It's dependent on God's faithfulness and steadfastness. 
So when I was asked by this person if they were really forgiven, I said, and, and this doesn't come from any wisdom I have. I, you know, when I get in these situations, I'm like, Lord, help me. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. But I said, have, have, have you ever felt the stirring of God's spirit? Have you ever picked up your Bible and felt like there was a line in there that was written just to you that day? Have you ever had it? Have you ever had a prayer answered? Have you ever felt like you've been blessed? Have you ever experienced a simple joy of feeling the presence of God in his word, even if it was only for a moment? Have you ever felt the peace of having a relationship with your father, even a little bit of it? The answer I got was yes. So I said, do, do you repent from your sin? And all of a sudden, the dam broke and the tears started coming and the anguish came out and all they could do was say yes. And I said, then you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Well, how, how do I know? Because God promises to forgive when we repent. Acts 3.19 Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. It's all based on repentance. Am I really forgiven? Yes. Yes, you are. And you know something? If you know Jesus Christ is Lord, you have an advantage over David. I mean, you've got it all over him. You know, you know that Jesus died for every sin you ever committed or will commit. That's the miracle of God's mercy. His only son, God himself, hanging on a cross to pay for your sins and my sins. And then coming out of the tomb to show us that it was all real. He meant it. It was effective. Every bit of it, every word, every promise covering every sin. And so what do we do about that? Well, we go do the two things that David is led to do. We live like God paid the price for our sin. And then we tell someone about it. We live like we're redeemed. And then we tell people that redemption's available for them as well. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your grace. We give you thanks for... This passage here that shows it, there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we have to do in return other than to dedicate ourselves to you, to surrender to you, Father. We pray that you give us the temerity to understand that, Father. We pray that because of this, Lord, we would carry around no burden that we're not designed to carry. Lord, that we would 
repent, that we would, we would do the act of repentance. What is not just, not just grieving over our sins, Father, but turning away from them and toward your righteousness, Father, that we might be free. That we might be able to speak of peace and joy and restoration and a new heart. And a God who loves us so desperately that he gave himself to die for our sins. And now as we adjourn from here and sit down around the table to enjoy a meal, we pray your blessing on our fellowship, Father. And we pray the words of, of your Bible, Father, the words of your scripture would radiate from our hearts and in our mouths and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Next week, we'll be in Psalm 32. Uh, we'll probably start First John towards the end of February. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.